You're listening to sermons from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church, please visit our website at gcceugene.org. We've been preaching through Isaiah, specifically one verse, Isaiah 9-6, for the past few weeks. And we're going to continue in that series this morning as we talk about the Everlasting Father and what it is for the Everlasting Father to give us everlasting loves. And so the main point this morning is going to be the Everlasting Arms. There's an old traditional hymn called Leaning on the Everlasting Arms, if you've never heard of it. And so that, that hymn specifically is taken from Deuteronomy chapter 33, where it talks about God's everlasting arms. And so that's what we're going to be looking at this morning is God's everlasting arms, what it is to be held and secure and safe in the arms of a loving father. And so this morning, if you're new and you're visiting with us, this is what we hope you understand the gospel and the gospel means good news. And the good news follows bad news. The bad news is that none of us can live the life that God has set out for us to live. Literally, we celebrate Christmas because we understand this. Jesus showing up on earth said to every human being, you have not measured up to God's standard. That's what Christ is doing on earth. We have the birth of Christ. We celebrate it because Christ showed up, God in human flesh saying, you haven't done it. That's why I'm here. I'm here to do what you cannot do. So there is a world full of people that think that by your moral standards, you can somehow measure up to a holy God. There's people that think because you care about social matters in this life, it makes you a right person or a good person. In all of those things, you're going to struggle with Christianity because what Christianity says is that you haven't done it, you can't do it, and you need a savior to do it for you. And that's what we celebrate, which is actually really good news. And it's the good news of Christ coming and doing what we cannot do. So this morning, I want us to look at that, the everlasting arms. And what I want to start off with saying is this. I believe, anthropologically speaking, big word, but looking at humanity, that we suffer from a broken heart and we suffer from a love condition. It was new to me that there is now a condition called the condition of being lovesick. Something I looked up, it's actually a psychological condition that you can become lovesick. I don't want to trivialize anyone who's suffered from a broken heart or anything like that, but Apparently, you can be lovesick. It's something I believe you can even request time off work from. So, I even read some strategies on what to do if you are struggling with lovesickness. One of them was you can think of all the faults and failures of the person that you are struggling of lovesickness from so that you can be reminded that they're not as unique as they thought they were. I was like, wow, the way to get over stuff is to think about how awful someone is. Okay. All this to say is that what I would say is as a culture, we are incredibly confused on what love is. If you ever do premarital counseling with me or my wife, you will hear us say a phrase over and over and over and over again. And that's that we have to put devotion before emotion. But our society paints love as putting emotion before devotion. And so it's really easy to fall in love and fall out of love. We love everything. We use the word love for everything. We love burritos. We love this. We love that. And we have a very shallow, I believe, and fickle understanding of what love is. And so when the Bible talks about love, God's everlasting love, God's eternal love, I think it's hard for us to even grasp what it is because we read so much of what our culture says about love back into the Bible instead of letting the Bible shape 
love and let that read into the culture. So with that, let's pray. Father, where we are confused about what love is, I pray that through your word, through the truth of who you are, of what you've done, of the greatest display of love, sending your son to rescue us, that our hearts would be floored, that, Father, you would realign our understanding of what love is. I pray for our church members and our church family that the world would know that we're your disciples by the way that we love one another. I pray for those that are also our members, that the people that aren't a part of our church family, the people that we live by, the people that we work with, would see a reflection of your love in and through our lives. Father, thank you for the good news of the gospel. Thank you for sending your son to rescue us. Teach us about your love and heal our wounded hearts, our broken hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a popular sport. It's, be, it's become popular over the past 20, 30 years. It's called Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, you essentially are trying to get your opponent to say uncle. You're trying to get them to tap out. And there are many different ways you can do this. You can do this through chokehold. You can do this through joint manipulations. There's many different ways. My wife will never tell you this. She's not in here today, and so I kind of have free reigns. But my wife has competed at a couple of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu tournaments. And she was a brand new white belt whenever she was doing this. And so I was there coaching her, and so was my friend, and she won two tournaments with a move that isn't even really a move. What she would do is she was in such a state, and she would tell you of panic, that she would get into a position. Hang on. Also, we're playing with a new mic today, so just be patient with us as we kind of deal with fixing it. So my wife would get into this position. And when she was there, she would grab hold of her opponent and she would suff- just essentially smother them. And so my, and she would say she did this because she was panicked. And so I'm, I'm trying to coach her to her next move. I'm like, all right, that's a good position now. Let's, let's, let's do this and do this. And then before you know it, her girl that she was going against just started tapping. I was like, what is she tapping to? That's not even a move. So her next match, she does the same thing. And then so I'm trying to coach her again. And I'm saying, hey, and, and my buddy goes, hey, man, why don't you just let her do her thing? It seems to be working for her. And I was like, oh, that's a solid point. Just let her. He's like, yeah. I was like, what is it? He's like, I don't know. I just think she's smothering them to death. And I was like, that's great. And so she literally won two tournaments off not knowing a single submission, but simply smothering her opponents to death. She would just get them and squeeze so tight and so hard with her gi and everything wrapped around them that they would just panic and tap out. And so she would smother them to death. There is now a move in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. It's called the smother choke or the mother's milk choke, which is so, yeah, just anyways. And she's like, wait a minute. She was like ticked. She was like, I did that before that was like a move or something like that. And so she wants a little bit of credit for that. But all this to say, as, as we think about smothering, I would say this, our broken heart condition is this, that we grab hold of things in this life that are created things instead of the creator, and we attempt to smother them. We attempt to grab a hold of those things to give us a sense of worth a sense of completeness, a sense of satisfaction, a sense of something to feel something within us. Or we look to things for approval and we want the love so desperately from something else or someone else to love us 
that we live life with this broken heart condition of trying to smother something or plead with someone or something else to love us and love us deeply. I would say this, big statement, if you want to die a million deaths in this lifetime, live for the love and approval of man. If you want to rob yourself of joy, give your heart away to loving all things in this world above everything else. If you want to be restless, then don't rest until you find that one person or one thing who is going to complete you. We are people looking for love, as the old song goes, in all the wrong places. So what does the word say? Where does this come from? If you actually go back to Genesis 1, what you see is you see that God created all things. I'm presenting you right now, teaching you the Christian worldview of creation and where things went wrong and where the broken heart came from, is that God created everything and he called it good. And then God created humanity and he called it very good. That word there, good, is actually the Hebrew word tov which means pleasant or desirable. So God creates things and God creates humanity and he looks at his humanity and he says, oh, it's desirable. It's pleasing. It's good. And then something happens by chapter three. We see what's called sin enter the picture of humanity. And what we see is a broken heart that follows. What I mean by that is we see humanity start loving other things more than God and start seeking the love of other things to receive them instead of God's love. And we see the fracture that has happened across the human race. And here's the truth that's hard for us to swallow. We so want to believe that the problem with humanity is something that happens outside of our door, outside of our house. That, that there's something broken out inside the world. But the truth is, is let's get, let's try this just for fun. You guys try this in the holiday season, okay? Get all of your loved ones into the same household together and lock those doors from everything bad outside and then let me know how it goes on the inside of that house. And then, and then what will happen is you'll start to know so-and-so is a real pain in the butt. You could get them out and get them out. And before you know it, there might be one or, or there might just be a couple of you left and you notice that there's still this tension. Why? Because the brokenness that we don't want to face is actually what's on the inside. What's easy to do is point and say that it's something out there in the world. But the reality is, what the Bible speaks to, is it's something in here that is broken. Therefore, we become obsessed with love. Loving things or trying to be loved by things. And I love what J.R. Tolkien says. He says this, The praise of the praiseworthy is above all rewards. The praise of the praiseworthy is above all rewards. In other words, we are people longing to have someone look at us and say, you are pleasing, you are delightful, you are acceptable, you are good. Our way to fix humanity's broken heart problem is to then try and love other things or get other things to love us. Instead of realizing what we need is the everlasting father and his everlasting love, and to be held in his everlasting arms. And if it's not that, we will run a restless course trying to find something in this world to satisfy what only God can. Let's look at Isaiah 9.6. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called, remember last week we looked at these, 
and discuss. These are, these are ultimately titles. That's what we have. We have wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father and prince of peace. So in other words, Israelites, the Messiah is coming. These are his titles. He's going to be the wonderful counselor. He's going to be the mighty God. He's going to be the everlasting father. He's going to be the prince of peace. This is all really good news for a nation that is carried away into exile that needs a rescuer. And this is what we are told, that he is going to be born and is going to be these things. Think about it this way. Jesus is the wonderful counselor who has planned our salvation in eternity past. He is the mighty God who's the only one who has the power to accomplish it through his perfect shed blood on the cross for us. And he's the everlasting father who doesn't just pay the price, but wants to give us something. His love and safety in his arms for all eternity. You see, this was good news because it's easy for, could be easy for the Israelites to read, read this and say, this is what your Messiah is going to be like. He's going to be a wonderful counselor. He's going to be wise like Solomon. He's going to be a mighty God. We talked about El Gabor, like David, one who's a champion who can take out the giants. We know that Jesus planned salvation. We know that Jesus accomplished the salvation. But then you might go, oh, I don't know. Is he just this king that sits far off and reigns? No. This would be good news because he goes on to say he's not like any other king that sits in a high place, that stays disconnected and removed from the people of his land. He's saying this is the kind of Messiah who's a father, which means this. He sees all, he knows all, and he has deep compassion and investment into his people. You see, Jesus is everlasting. That means that Christ has always existed. He's always been around. There's never been a time when Christ has not been. It's not saying that Christ is God. What it's saying is even what Ian read is that Christ is going to come and he's going to be the exact imprint of the nature of God. If you ever want to know what God is like, if you're a Christian or non-Christian and you want to know what is the God of the universe like, read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and look at the life of Christ because he is the exact imprint of the nature of God. See, the mystery of the Trinity is that we have one God who exists in three persons. Not one God who changes hats, but one God who is three distinct persons. And it's in Jesus that we get to see what this God is like. What is he like? Well, first, the Father's compassionate compassionate. That's good for us to know. Isaiah makes it clear in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. We won't look at that now, but you, but you need to hear this. Isaiah says, and, and he's quoting God, that my ways are not your ways. In other words, I am a father. And to any parent in the room, you know that we can be short on patience. We can become calculated we can become frustrated really easily. And our problem is this, is that then we, we look at the father that we are or we look at the fathers that we have had, sometimes good, sometimes not. And then we go, God must be like that. And God assures us that my ways are not like yours. Don't look at fathers and then think that's me. Look at me. And he describes who he is. In Exodus 34, he tells us that he is merciful long-suffering, that he's patient, and we see that God is compassionate. 
Look at Psalm 13. It says this, that as a father shows compassion to his children, as the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Fathers are called to be compassionate. Ultimately, God is compassionate. How do we see his compassion in Christ? When Jesus shows up, Jesus looks around at humanity and he could just become easily frustrated with all the brokenness in in humanity and just become frustrated. Let's be honest. As people that live in the Pacific Northwest, how often do we drive around our town, look at our town, look at all the people, and we just throw our hands up and go, this town is a mess. I'm done with it. These people suck. You get to the life of Christ. He looks around at people, and this is what it says in Matthew 9, 35 and 36. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus looks at people not with frustration, but he looks at people and goes, they're sheep without a shepherd. They're lost. They're helpless. They're hopeless. If you want to know what God is like, look at Christ. It is absolutely amazing. He looks at brokenness in the world and he's filled with compassion. The word For compassion here, it's actually this inward gut, pity. It's the same word that's used when the prodigal son returns back to the father and the father runs out to meet him. He's filled with such a deep, deep sense of love that it's also, it's almost hard to contain. That's the kind of love and compassion that Christ has. You see, when we talk about the everlasting arms of an everlasting father, an everlasting king, we understand that first those arms that we're held in are not the God who's just constantly triggered by us, frustrated by us, ready to smoke us, just, oh, come on, you're still doing that over and over and over again. We are reminded of a God who has incredible compassion, incredible patience. But we're also reminded of this God's love and this God's approval. How much would it change? Let me ask you this. How much would it change your life? to know that the everlasting father, the eternal God looks upon you and rejoices, delights over you. You have not a partial sense of his approval, but you have the fullness of his approval. So no matter what setting you go into, whether you're in work, whether you're giving a public uh, speech, anything like that, that the God of this universe, the most important person in the room, the most important person in the entire universe adores you. Would it change the way you live life? Yeah. As, as someone who coaches jujitsu, I watch people and, and I get to watch so, sometimes the people in the room that are looking for their parents. And as, as I coach T-ball from a young age, you start to watch little boys do this. They're constantly looking over to their dad to see their dad's look and whether they have their dad's approval or not. And it doesn't, it doesn't go away. This week, I was coaching a young man who was 30 years old. And, and as I was working with him, he kept looking over at the other coach in the room. And that coach was leading the class. And you could tell he was just wanting that coach to see everything that he was doing. Still longing for approval. It's as if we know deep within us, we have this longing to have someone look over us with delight, with approval, with praise. And so therefore, again, we try to love things 
and wrap our existence around things or we try to seek the love of other things thinking those things will somehow satisfy us. And yet, if you're anything like me, you go from endeavor to endeavor to endeavor to endeavor. You try this, you try this. Next thing you have a next hobby. Next thing you have something else. Next thing you think, this is going to be the thing. And you go from thing to thing to thing, somehow thinking that this next thing, this next endeavor, this next venture in life is going to provide the meaning that you need. Only to realize it's the same as a new car. The smell eventually wears off. And it's because we have this problem. We are so quick to give our love to things. And I would call it our infatuation to things. So quick to think that if this thing or this person can love us, when in all reality what we need is the everlasting father and his everlasting arms arms and his everlasting delight. What's a way to tell that we have a love problem? I like what Dr. Timothy Keller does say. He, He talks about our comparison. By comparing ourselves to other people and trying to make ourselves look better than others, we are boasting, trying to recommend ourselves, trying to create a self-esteem resume because because we are desperate to fill our sense of inadequacy and emptiness. The ego is incredibly busy. In other words, it is always drawing attention to itself. It is incredibly busy trying to fill the emptiness. And it's incredibly busy doing two things in particular, comparing and boasting. Christians, be honest. Walk in here this morning. You walk in every room. How often do we start comparing? Why? Why do we do that? Why do we internally start comparing and start judging? If we were secure in the Father's love, is that something that we would naturally do? Do we feel the need to fill up something by comparing ourselves to others, by bringing them down to lift ourselves up? We love to love things. I love talking with young people that tell me that their therapist has told them that they're struggling too much, loving, them, uh, loving other people, and that they need to spend more time focusing on loving themselves. Just really, really love that talk. And here's why. I have not met that person. We are experts at loving ourselves. We are experts at being selfish. We are experts at putting our needs in front of everything else. We are experts of loving things, thinking that somehow the things that we love are going to satisfy us. And here's the thing. If you love success and you worship success and you give your heart to success, then be prepared for this, to spend your life restless, constantly restless, looking at the success or lack of success within your own company to constantly be looking at your bank accounts and stock markets and everything else, letting your emotions rise or fall based upon your love for success in your life. If you are someone who loves your body image, then expect your emotions to rise and fall as your weight rises and falls on the scale. If you are someone who loves being needed by people, expect yourself to be really disappointed and to be really disheartened when people don't need you. If you are someone who is thinking that the relationship you're in is going to satisfy you and bring you a sense of completeness, I just want to get out ahead of you to let you know that is a crushing weight you are putting on someone else. What do we need? We need God's love. We need God's approval. 
but then we need a heart that is being reshaped and rewired, not to just latch on and smother and grab hold of everything else in this life. We need the spirit of God to come inside of us to pry our grips open and start wrapping it around God himself instead of everything else that God has created. How does this happen? How do we enter into into God's love? How does infinite, eternal, everlasting love and arms become ours? It doesn't happen by your moral lifestyle. It doesn't happen by anything you do or don't do. You see, Jesus came to not only live for us, but also die for us. You need to get that. And I'll say it in the other way. Jesus did not only just come to die, but he actually came to live. What did Christ do in his life? He loved the, the, the father with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he loved others before himself. He's the only person in all of human history that didn't smother things to death, thinking those things were going to give him worth. The reason why we get angry, the reason why our emotions are high and low and all those things is because we're constantly wrapping our, our lives and our existence around things that weren't intended to complete us. Christ found his completeness in the father's love. Christ loved the Father above all else, but then he went to the cross and he died as a man who has given his heart away to every sinful desire in this life. Why? Because he came, he, he became what he wasn't, a sinner, and made us what we are not, holy and righteous. You see, what we actually long for is righteousness in this life. We long for the everlasting Father to look upon us and say, yes, good, desirable, pleasing righteous and holy. The only way that happens is through faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That's the only way that happens. When we place our trust and faith in Jesus Christ, in that moment, we are made righteous. And in that moment, the God of this universe, the everlasting God, pours on us a love that our minds can't even fathom. Just let me read some of these verses. And some of these might be new for some of you, but maybe some of you have heard these before. What kind of love does God have for us? Look at, look at John 15, 9. John 15, 9 first says this. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. This is Jesus speaking, abide in my love. In case you didn't catch it. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Exactly how God loves the Son, so Jesus loves us. Whoa. Does God have incredible love for his son? Yes. What does that love look like? It's the same love that Christ has for us. It's an infinite, eternal, everlasting love. Jesus prays this in the high priestly prayer, John 17, 23 and 24. He says, I and them and you and me, that they may may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. How does the father love us? even as he loves his own son. Whoa, how much does God the Father love God the Son? Infinitely. That's the only type of love that is actually going to satisfy and complete our hearts. That's why we're smothering things. That's why we're running after things. That's why we're in relationships that we shouldn't even be in. That's why we're chasing things that we shouldn't even chase because somehow we are thinking that this is going to heal our love sickness. This is going to fix our broken hearts. Our hearts need to be wounded. I'm sorry, our hearts need to be healed. They need to be mended and, and, and they need to be fixed. Only the everlasting arms and the everlasting love of the Father can do that. That's only made available through trusting 
with your whole existence in what Christ has provided and done and finished. But then we might ask, great, the Father's compassionate. He, he offers everlasting love, but are we safe? Are, 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 we secu- are, are we secure? What if we sin? What if we stumble? What if we continue to struggle with the various addictions that we struggle with in life? I would say, keep struggling. Repentance is the mark of a Christian life. That's turning from sin, turning to Christ. But what I would also say is this, is that those who Christ saves are those who Christ holds for all eternity. He says in himself, John 6, 36 through 40. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who, uh, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. If you're wondering what the will of God is, let's keep reading. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. God's will. Believe in the Son. What happens? The compassionate Father gives you everlasting and eternal loves, love, and he holds you in his everlasting arms to never be cast out, to never let go. And as a Christian, you need to know this. You're ultimately not holding God. God is holding you with everlasting arms. I love the passage in John. We don't have a slide for this, but John 13, 23 through 25 says this. There was reclining on Jesus's bosom, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. So Simon Peter gestured to him and said to him, tell us who it is of who he is speaking. He leaning back thus on Jesus's bosom said to him, Lord, who is it? There's this scene where Judas One of the disciples is getting ready to betray Jesus, and so they're asking who it is. But the position that we find John in, the disciple whom Jesus loved, is is leaning back against his creator's chest, listening to his heartbeat, being held in the everlasting and secure arms of Christ, his creator. That's what's offered to those of us who have trust in Christ. That's what our souls ultimately need. We need to be held in the everlasting arms. We need the delight that only Christ has. And then when we place our trust and faith in Jesus Christ, here's the beauty of what he gives us. God sees you in that moment as though you've given your love and full devotion to him for all of your life. That's how you are seen. You're not seen by your life and how we fail in love and how we settle for generic loves. We are seen as people who have fully been devoted to God and to one another because Christ was and made that belong to us but he also gives us a spirit to come inside of our lives and start to pry open our grip from smothering other things. That's going to be painful. My encouragement is embrace that kind of pain because when the spirit comes in and starts to pry away the things that we're smothering in life, it's a good thing because what he's doing is wrapping our arms and our hands back around the creator, reminding us that it's only giving our heart and love to the creator who will never fail us. It's impossible for him too that we're going to find satisfaction. What do we do as we wrap up here? Three things. First, we embrace opportunities to love devotionally. So maybe right now you're struggling. You're in a marriage that's struggling. You're in relationships that's struggling. Let let me say this. We're not that good at loving, devotionally speaking. We're good at loving emotionally speaking. As long as there's an emotion there that someone's provided, we can lean into that emotion and love. I see this in church families all the time. Difficult things happen. 
hardships happen. You're a part of a family. And then what people do is they quickly bail. Why? Well, because as Eliane was saying, love requires sacrifice. Love requires devotion. And we're not that good at that. So if something's hard, it's just better to move on from it than to practice forgiveness like Christ has given us, to practice reconciliation like Christ has given us. And so I would say this, embrace any opportunities God gives you to love devotionally speaking, which means this, lean into times that you don't feel like doing something. Lean into opportunities that aren't just driven by your emotion. Like, hey, I was thinking about serving the church, but I'm waiting until I get this burning deep within. Guess what? That might not come, but trust what God does with your heart through the midst of sacrificial devotion. Embrace opportunities to love devotionally other people, people that are difficult to love. Here's the reality. You're probably that person for someone. Embrace the opportunities that God uses to unwrap your heart from the things you're smothering. What are those things? Talk about it in the context of community. The things that you're wrapping your heart around. Lastly, I'll say this. Embrace the gospel. Embrace the good news of what Christ has done. Embrace the everlasting arms of of your Savior. How do I do that? By surrender. You rest in the fact that Christ has done it all, that Christ has paid it all, that he has a compassionate heart for those that are in him, that he has love that is unshakable for you not based upon what you do or don't do and that you're held by him in his everlasting arms. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are good. Thank you that you sent your son as the exact imprint of you. Thank you, Jesus, for your compassion. Thank you for your love and thank you for your everlasting arms. We pray in your name. Amen.